We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. I would love for if you could open up the Bible to Mark chapter 1. Um, if you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 1473, I think. And we're going to pick up from verse 21. Let's just say a word of prayer, shall we, before we read. Father God, we're conscious that before you, Lord, we are unbelievably small. And yet, Lord, your love uh, is so expansive that you see into the depths of our hearts, you understand us, you know us so well. And uh, you have compassion and deep affection for us. And we thank you, Lord, that in giving us Jesus, Someone walked among us who came to put things right. And Lord, there's so much chaos and mess even in our own lives. Before we even begin to contemplate the mess in this world. And in view of this, Lord, we need, we need to be rightly ordered. We need the Spirit of God to come and touch us. We need to see Jesus in fresh ways. We need to bring our lives to you again, Lord. And so we invite you to speak to us today. And we pray that you'd put Christ before us in compelling and fresh ways that we will experience something of the quickening of the Holy Spirit as we open up your word and as we understand and contemplate the reality of your son, Jesus. Please do this in us now. Amen. I'd like to read to you verse 21 of Mark's gospel, first chapter. It says this. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came up and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We are coming to a passage in which I think for the first time up to this point in Mark's gospel, we're confronted with something, which is the reality of the authority of Jesus. And I'm conscious that in the day in which we live, the world in which we live, the culture of particularly the Western world, 
authority is usually regarded as something of a, a, a dirty word, if not something that's surrounded with suspicion. It's why we have so many checks and balances built into most authority structures in the culture in which we live. We're very dubious about it. We've seen some of the worst abuses documented of uh, authority and of power. And you know, along with that has been the rise of the importance of the individual, individual human rights, the fact that you are a free person in a society like this. And in that sense, you're accountable to no one, it, it would seem. We, we live our lives with that mentality. And I think, obviously, that there is a healthy suspicion around authority. But we also know that without it, humanity crumbles. And we need the right kinds of authority for human flourishing. You think about this. I talk with some of you about the experiences you have at work and in your various kinds of jobs. And one of the themes that often will come up when I'm talking with someone about how work is going is the issue of leadership. That so often, whether you are enjoying your work or not, a lot of it comes down to the authorities that you serve, or in particularly the culture in the place that's, that is there in the leadership. And uh, this is a consistent theme in conversations with people. And you find people are very happy and fulfilled where authority works well. And that their lives are often full of um, anxiety and often distress even, where authority is not working well, where there's abuse of authority or, or abdication of authority. And we know this also, we know this at every level of the society we live in, right down to families and all the way up to the governmental structures. So much of our day-to-day our sense of peace can come from a, a confidence in leaders and is robbed when we no longer feel that confidence. So we recognize authority is, is absolutely integral to human flourishing. You don't get very far without it. And so the question is not whether authority is a good or bad thing, but it's which kind of authority. So what does the authority mean and do for you? That's the most important thing. Now, when you are coming face to face with Jesus in the Bible you are inevitably being confronted with an authority figure who, is, who has absolute demands. You think about the titles of Jesus Christ in the Bible, even there in his name, Christ, the Messiah, the, the one who has kingly rule, that he's called the Prince of Peace. But it's a princely thing. He's called Everlasting Father. The names of Jesus exude a kind of claim upon this world and upon you as an individual. And not only his names, but also the words of Christ, the demands that he makes in the Gospels. We're going to see this again and again when we, when we, when we, when we journey through Mark's Gospel. That one of the things you see is his very absolute call upon individuals. He's not interested in having a bit of you. He's not interested in a nominal commitment, which just means in name only that's not consistent with your entire life. He's interested in the entire part of you. And only someone who is aware of and conscious of his own authority could make those kinds of demands. So authority is one of the most important things you have to understand when you understand Jesus. We are constantly being confronted with authority. Of course, it's there also in his power. As Jeremy was praying just now, 
we're conscious that Jesus described himself as a judge. As somebody who would know the ins and outs of our lives and in some ways make assessment of us, he calls himself the judge. So all these things mean that Christ comes to us as not just an authority figure, but an ultimate authority figure, someone who makes the most extreme kinds of claims over you as an individual and in, in, over this entire planet. So what we need to wrestle with is, well, what kind of authority are we looking at here? What is it that you experience when um, you're confronted with the authority of Christ? And I want to show you a few things that come through in this story because authority just keeps cropping up all the way through. Three aspects of the authority of Christ, that it's attractive, that it's reactive, and that it's transformative. It's attractive, reactive, and transformative. Here we go. The first thing about the authority of Christ that you see is that he is, there's something very attractive about him. There is a, a compelling attraction to his, his leadership. And you see that really in, in this opening couple of verses where it says that they went into Capernaum on the Sabbath, they entered a synagogue, and he was teaching it says they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, on the one hand, what's going on here? Jesus is doing something incredibly ordinary. He's going to church on Sunday, basically, except it was Saturday and they call it synagogue and not church. But it's basically what you're doing today. He does something incredibly ordinary. And one of the mistakes we often make in life is we, we assume that if God's going to do something special, it's going to be in some unique and new way. When in fact, usually what God does is he works through the ordinary rhythms of, of faithful uh, devotion to him. But he, he fills them with new life. And that's what's going on here. It's just a normal Sabbath day, but something extraordinary happens. Because there on that particular Sabbath, Jesus stood up and began to teach. And what you see about him is that they are, they're saying he, he teaches like no one else. And you've got to understand a little bit of the context here. At the time... The, the person who set up the, sab- uh, the synagogue, the kind of synagogue leader, would not do any of the teaching. They were just more interested in the administration, the functions of, of their kind of gathering, their church gathering. But there were these men in Jewish society who were called scribes. And they had, they had the greatest honor among the people because they would call them a, like a name like rabbi or rabbi, which means my great one. And they had the, the position of authority when they sat down at church, they always took the seat of, the, of highest authority in the synagogue. And people had to stand when they entered the room. It's not something that we're accustomed to in a culture in which we don't, we don't particularly honor any kinds of authority figures. And at least at one point in time, it was, it was customary to stand if a woman entered or if an elder person entered. We don't do any of that anymore. And we definitely don't stand when pastors enter the room. <laughs> but here, when rabbis entered, they were accorded incredible honor. And, and what the people notice is that, okay, those guys have all the honor because it's, you know, it's partly because of their title and because of their position and because of their learning. But this guy has something very unique. When we listen to Jesus, it's like he doesn't need the title and he doesn't need people to stand for him and he doesn't need to have the seat of honor. There's something that's just sucking us into his orbit and compelling us with a desire to listen to him. They said it, and what they, they, they sum it up in this word, they say he has authority. Now, I want you to think about this. What must it have been like to have listened to Jesus? We have one of the incredible privileges of our day is that we have 
some of the greatest speeches in modern history have been recorded, haven't they? And you can, you can capture something of the, the magnetic power of certain speeches. Of course, ones in history, like the Gettysburg Address, were not recorded orally, so we, uh, audibly, so you can't hear them. But you can hear Martin Luther King, can't you? And you can listen to his I Have a Dream speech, and you can feel something of the compelling nature and the tone of his voice and the cadence and his rhythms and all these kinds of things. And the same is true with um, hearing Winston Churchill, you know, uh, we shall fight them on the beaches, we shall fight them on the landing grounds, and we shall never surrender. I love it. And there's nothing quite listening to the original. Even the best actors can't recapture the emotion of the original and the power and authority of it. And uh, one of the things that I, you know, I'm a bit of a, a nerd when it comes to certain preachers. I, you know, the men in the last century or, or prior to that who've really impacted my life, and one of the, the ones who's really impacted me was a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I was so, I was moved. The first time I, uh, it, it was released on YouTube, a video of him, not preaching, unfortunately, but just, most of you had no idea who he was, so this is completely lost on you. But for me, it was incredibly special to see his presence, to experience something of um, his person just through the screen. And if you dig back, you can, you must have, many of you will have heard of D.L. Moody and William Booth. D.L. Moody, a great American evangelist. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, um, who had a worldwide impact. Both of them lived in the 1800s, and both of them, you can hear short snippets of recordings of their voices that were recorded on early devices, just tiny fragments of them speaking. D.L. Moody reading a scripture passage, um, William Booth preaching, and just two, two and a half minutes of his preaching. And you, you begin to feel something of the impact, why these men were used by God. But unfortunately, we don't have that when it comes to Jesus, right? We, we don't get to hear him audibly and the impact of him. But what we can see is something of what came through when we read the Gospels, why he stood out so distinctly, and what it was that was attractive about his authority, and why, in fact, you feel something of that attraction when you're exposed to the teaching about Jesus. And I'll show you a few things. So one thing is this, that he had a personal authority. You know, sometimes you meet someone who has amazing presence, don't you, when they walk into the room regardless of, um, even if you know them sometimes, some people just carry a presence with them wherever they go. And it's an intriguing thing. It's hard to sometimes fully capture why or what it is. But when you look at Jesus, you ask, well, what was his presence? It wasn't that he primarily to do with his personality, charisma, uh, confidence, those sorts of things. And it definitely wasn't to do with arrogance or a sense of entitlement or any of those things. But what you do know about him was he had, at the core of his being, he knew who he was. You remember how just earlier in this first chapter, he heard God's voice when he's being baptized. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus had an intense and real understanding of who he was, that he is the son of God who has a claim on this world. Which is why when he speaks, you know, you read his sermons, he says things like this. He says, you've heard that it was said. And he's talking about, you know, what the preachers said and when reading the scriptures. But he says, but I say to you. This is a common way that he preaches. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. The authority was in him, in his person, 
it was like he carried this sense of identity. Another thing about his authority is that he had total conviction. In other words, he, he really believed the things that he's saying. Now, to some degree, you can fake this, right? You can pretend to believe something or talk about something. You know, you might be sharing at life group and sort of pontificating about something you think you know about as though you believe it when you're not really sure you even understand what you're saying. And, you know, if that's true for you, maybe it's true for me from time to time. And um, certainty, but, but at the same time, when, when you meet someone who has deep certainty about the things they're saying, it's a very compelling and attractive thing, isn't it? Even if it's slightly threatening at the same time. The flip side to it is when someone's very uncertain and always offering caveats and, and, and what-ifs and doubts and uncertainties. And that creates insecurity, doesn't it? If any of you have ever been in a relationship with somebody who was really not sure about whether this relationship was right, the, the effect was that it had a corrosive effect because it, it creates insecurity and uncertainty within the relationship itself, doesn't it? And gradually affection goes as your mind spins and you play out scenarios. Or I think we're experiencing this a little bit on a national level at the moment because there's so much insecurity being felt because of our uncertain future. What's going to happen with Brexit? No one knows. But when someone comes in with absolute conviction and authority, and particularly for Jesus, it was that he believed the Scriptures. When he read the Old Testament and when he quoted the Old Testament, Often his preaching turned on a tiny detail in the text, which showed you how closely he read it and how deeply he believed that it was the word of God. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that we, we accept the scriptures as God's word is because Jesus believed them. And of course, the scribes believed them to a degree, but Jesus also criticized them because he says, you search them looking for life and you don't believe in me. In other words, you don't read them well enough, friends. And yet Jesus comes and he has, he not only has this personal authority because he, he knows who he is, he's the son of God, but he also has this absolute bedrock certainty that when he is reading the Bible, it is the father's revelation and therefore he preaches that in that way as well. You ever hear somebody who has that degree of certainty, it, it absolutely gets you. Not only that, another thing about him was that he was totally consistent with the things he taught. In other words, he had integrity. Integrity is a beautiful thing. It means that your life is whole. It means that what is displayed on the outside runs through to the very center of your being and there's no inconsistency between the two. And it's compelling when you encounter it. I was a little embarrassed because this week I, um, I'd sent a message to some of the folk in the church who are involved in leadership and volunteer teams and asked them, friends, please do make an effort to come on time or come early on Sundays uh, for various reasons and explain it to them. And then I was late this morning, which is just <laughs> we, uh, total lack of integrity. So, and, but the thing is, so Jesus criticized this. When, he, when he's talking to the scribes, he says, woe to you scribes, because you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and selfish indulgence. He says, woe to you, because you're like a whitewashed tomb. You remember the, the habit in those days was to bury somebody in a, in a, perhaps in a, in a cave or in a sepulcher and then paint it white on the outside. He said, that's what your life is like. It's outwardly very shiny and beautiful, he says, but inward it's full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
And of course, when you encounter Jesus, you encounter someone who has perfect integrity because the things he teaches and the demands he makes are not out of kilter with the life that he lives. It's all consistent and of one piece. It has integrity. And that gives weight to the things he's saying. If you think of speech as being like a sharp cutting edge, like on an axe, it's the weight behind it that makes it effective. And that's what integrity is in the words of Jesus. He practiced the things he preached. There was no hypocrisy in him. And here's another thing about him. He had an overwhelming love for the people he was preaching to. You sense it when you're around somebody who can challenge you because they love you. It's very different from being criticized in another context. And Jesus, you know, this is one of the differences between him and the scribes. The scribes, he put it like this. He says they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, they, they tell you all the things that you must do to please God, and then they put it on your shoulder and then they don't help you because they don't really love you. But he says about, but in that same chapter, a little later on, you hear Jesus' heart coming through for people when he, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. He grieves over their lack of response. He's compassionate for the people he's preaching to. And this is all these things when you, you feel a composite picture of the kind of preaching you must have heard when you heard Jesus. He walked into the room. He had certainty about who he was. He opened the scriptures and preached them as though he believed them entirely because he did. His whole life backed up the things he was saying. And most of all, he looked you in the eye and you felt his compassion bleeding through with every word and every plea. One of the things that's fascinated me um, in the, over the last year or so, the last couple of years, has been the popularity of that Canadian psychiatrist, Jordan Peterson, was an unlikely thing, an academic and a psychiatrist who has a following now of millions of people interested in the things he's writing and saying, and mainly young men in their 20s. And various people have tried to explain this phenomenon, actually, because it's a very unusual thing. And they said one of the things that is evident about him is that he loves, he feels compassion for the people he's speaking to. He loves them. And whilst you may agree with some of the things he said and have issue with some of the advice he gives, whatever we make of the things he says, it's the love that comes through. If, that was, if that's true of a Canadian psychiatrist who lives in the Toronto area of Toronto, then how much more is it true of the Son of God who gave himself for us? He didn't just want to come and lay down the law for us. He wanted to come and rescue us. I think this is why when Jesus teaches, he, teaches, he, doesn't, just, he doesn't just talk about trivialities. He talks about life and death issues. He talks about the most pressing thing that you must come to terms with today because he wants to rescue you. And he, even less does he, does he speak in such a way that he is just trying to win friends and influence people, as the title of the book says. He's not a people pleaser. He's, he's a savior. And when he speaks, he tells you straight what you must do, what you must believe, what is important for you right now. And when you meet somebody like that, there is something magnetic and compelling about it. There is deep attraction to the authority of Christ. That's what we're seeing in that synagogue on that 
Sabbath day happening here in Mark 1. And it's what you feel, actually, as well, when you're around something of the presence of Christ in various forms. How do you hear Christ? You hear him in his word. You hear him by preaching. You hear him by his spirit who brings his word to bear on your heart. And you hear him, actually, in other believers when they are speaking God's truth to you. You don't believe me. Remember how Jesus sent out his disciples at the end of Matthew 28? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth, remember it's that same word, authority. He says, it's been given to me. And then he says this. He looks them in the eye, his 12 or 11 at that time. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, the very authority that I have, I now commission in you to go and speak God's word, and I'm with you as you do it. So that is, that is a huge element of this theme of authority. The gospel comes to us, and it confronts us. It gets in our face. And there's something very attractive about the leadership of Jesus Christ, something that you and I are drawn to because we know we cannot figure life out without help. And we need answers and we need certainty and we need help and we need love from someone who has compassion for us. So Jesus comes to us and his authority is very attractive. But then there's another element you see here in this story. It's not just that there's attraction, there's also reaction. There's something reactive about the presence and authority of Christ. And it comes out in what happens, that bizarre event in the synagogue when the the demonic sort of voice comes through a man as he stands up and objects. Authority seems to me to always create a reaction. I enjoy this, actually, when, it's one of my, I, when my kids are playing up. Right? So they, every, every night we put them to bed and we tell them, okay, you, you can talk, but you don't turn the lights on, you don't get out of bed, and you must just, you must just behave and then go to sleep. Right? And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And usually... If they're getting into a bad habit, it runs for a number of nights in a row. It's sort of like a pattern you have to break. And we noticed this just in the summer. They started getting up in the night. And uh, one of the things that they would do is they would both climb on the window ledge and shout out the window. Which is just, you've got to question their intelligence because clearly we can hear what's going on. And they'd be standing on the window ledge shouting and they're behind the curtains. And I would, I'd creep into their room. And then slowly open the door and just wait until they noticed I was there. Because I love the look on their face <laughs> when they see me. And there's, some, there's like terror and a little bit of giddy excitement. And it's all mixed together because they know they're in trouble at that point. And they don't quite know whether they're going to get punished or not. And I like to keep that a little bit mysterious. <laughs> so, but that's what authority is like. When, when authority enters the room and confronts you, there's always a reaction, isn't there? Because it makes claims on you, and those claims are very personal claims. It, it, it's, it's true in all contexts. If authority bears on you, it creates a reaction. And so Christ, in his presence in the Gospels, one of the things that strikes you when you're reading the Gospels, uniquely actually among all parts of the Bible, is just how many demonic manifestations there are, that evil spirits start doing things. You think, well, what's going on there? Why, are there? why does there seem to be demons under every rock when Jesus is walking around, when, like, I've never met a demon? And I think part of the answer is 
that Jesus is he's the light of the world, right? And when he brings, it's like switching on the light in a basement that's infested with rats. That when he comes in, it's not that they weren't there. It's just suddenly you see them all scurrying around. Or like have you ever seen on one of those nature programs, there are caves in the world where the roofs are covered in bats, the floor is covered in bat dropping, and the floor is crawling with insects like cockroaches that devour the droppings. It's not the kind of place you want to spend the night, is it? But when the light goes on, the scurrying and the movement as the bats fly away and all the insects try and find little holes to hide in. I think the presence of Jesus is a bit like that. His authority comes into the world and it creates a reaction. Just commenting very quickly on a few things you notice about the reaction we see on this day in the synagogue. There's a few things that that help you to understand that this is actually the work of an evil spirit, that it's demonic. The one aspect is that it's ecstatic. In other words, um, you know, it breaks the normal order of the service. Imagine if this morning one of you just stood up and shouted at me. Um, it, that's what happened, and it must have surprised everybody. There's an ecstatic element to it when it says, um, it says immediately in their synagogue, there's a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. That's one thing. Another thing about this is that there's fear in his voice. He asks the question, what have you to do with us, Jesus and Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, who has cause to be as afraid as that in the presence of Christ? And of course, it's Christ's enemies, not the people. It's the evil spirits at work. And the third element that you see here is that there's supernatural knowledge, because this is one of the things you see all the way through the Gospels, where demons are involved. They know who Jesus is, even if the people have no idea. The demons know. And the demon addresses Jesus and says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. So it's ecstatic. There's this kind of uh, fear element and it has a supernatural knowledge. And all of this tells you, okay, this is something spiritual that's going on here. And that's why it's recognized as such by Christ and the gospel writers and stuff. And it obviously presses on us this question. Where is this demonic activity happening today? And I think part of the answer is that we live in what um, the philosopher Charles Taylor um, has described it as a disenchanted age. There was a time that the Western world saw spirits behind in everything. Spirits in every tree, in every bush. Spirits in every evil thing that happened. Spirits in people. Spirits all over the place. And with the onset of naturalism and materialism, in other words, a scientific age and rationalism, the spiritual element has been kind of demystified and stripped away and we live in what he calls a disenchanted age we don't really think of ourselves as living in a spiritual world anymore we live in a world that's a bit like a machine everything happens through cause and consequence through the laws of physics and all these kinds of things and it doesn't mean that spiritualities are any less true it just means that we don't see them anymore and there's a couple of things that this means one is that i think you can you can answer it partly from the from the perspective of the work of evil spirits in the world. In one sense, it's in their best interest to remain hidden. I remember how, you know, have you ever read uh, Screwtape Letters? C.S. Lewis, really interesting book about um, where an older demon writes letters to a younger demon who's trying to stop a guy from becoming a Christian. And it's all, of course, completely out of C.S. Lewis' imagination. But, it, you know, it's, it's quite eye-opening at the same time. 
And there's one thing he writes in that book. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to believe, one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And he says, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So they love people who are obsessed with spirits and they love people who don't believe in them at all because either way they can do their worst work, right? That's what C.S. Lewis is saying. So the demons are better off. But also I think part of the issue is that you, know, you and I have grown up to believe that the world works by forces that can be explained and quantified. And therefore we, from our youngest days, we are actually um, indoctrinated is the word with materialistic lenses through which we view the whole world. And we, we only understand and interpret everything in life through those lenses. We can't see it through spiritual lenses. It's not true if you grow up elsewhere. It's not true if you grow up in the majority world. It's not necessarily true um, outside of our particular Western context and our particular slice in history and in modern history. And so it's very arrogant for us to think that this is the true way of understanding everything when many people don't look at it this way at all. And here's how it shapes us. It means that we can see the same kinds of spiritual conflict going on in our day-to-day lives, but completely not see it as being related to spiritual work at all. We think of ourselves as being cool, rationalist, objective people. But in some ways, I think spiritual explanations make a lot more sense sometimes. Think about this. Think about... Think about how irrational resistance to Jesus can be at times. You may have felt this in your own heart. You may have seen it in people that you're talking to. How so often people are not willing to even give a hearing to Christ, but react on the basis of emotion. And I ask myself, is that, can that be explained purely as a natural phenomenon or is there spiritual work there because it seems to me that that's exactly what we're seeing in the, in the in the bible when you see demonic stuff happen there's resistance to jesus and it's a spiritual thing think about the prevalence these days and it's on the increase <clears throat> of life debilitating mental illnesses and we have to be very careful when we talk about these things because we never want to give the impression that we think that all mental illness could be in some way uh, spiritually caused. But at the same time, it's so hard for us to tease the two things apart because you are spiritual beings. So why should we assume that everything has a natural explanation? It's just the firing of chemicals in your brain when we know that we are spiritual beings. And it seems to me that we're too quick to diagnose things that we can't fix and explain it all away as being natural, when actually it seems to me that in the Bible, often when people are in, in life debilitating captivity in their minds, we un- they could see what we cannot see, but that there can be spiritual malevolent forces at work there. And that seems to me to make more sense. Or the fact that even our modern medicines can't fix these things. Think about your own experience with persistent temptations in certain areas. Why is it that you hate certain things but return to them or are drawn to them? 
Couldn't it be the fact that there is spiritual activity at work that we do not fully understand or give appreciation to? And so we see the same kinds of things that are happening in this passage when this man stands up and shouts, happening in our world. For example, I was in a, I was in a, a, a privilege of hearing one of the greatest Christian debaters um, probably five, six, seven years ago, a man called William Lane Craig. And uh, William Lane Craig is phenomenal in debate because he's very calm, he's very cool, and he is frighteningly logical. So when you hear him speak, it's very hard to evade the conclusions of the things he's saying. And on this particular occasion, he was debating an atheist who taught, he was a professor in one of the London universities, and uh, the place was packed out. It was Methodist Central Hall, absolutely packed to the gunnels of people because it's a fascinating thing to watch two great minds collide, isn't it? And... Uh, one of the things that, that, that slightly surprised me on the night was how, how much hatred was being pointed at Lane Craig. Despite his very amiable presentation, his very gentle manner, and his very logical way of speaking, the people in the row in front of me were muttering the whole way through, um, speaking quite, with quite fierce language against him. And a man stood up halfway through and shouted from the balcony over William Lane Craig. Now, no one did this when the atheist was speaking. And of course, I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but it seems to me that kind of ecstatic outburst is exactly what we're seeing happening in the synagogue. And we automatically just explain it away as just an angry person. But why, why can't it be something more, more sinister than that? You think about how the same irrational fears are at work about you know, this, this man, the words that come out of his mouth are, have you come to destroy us? And yet it seems to me that so many people, the way they act around Christians or around discussion around Christianity is like they feel the exact same fear. Have you come to destroy us? And I suppose at some level that's true. Jesus has come to destroy you so that he can resurrect you. He has come to kill you so that he can give you new life. He has come to destroy your old life of sin in the flesh so that you can experience a new life that is given to you from him and will last for eternity. So yeah, it's, it's a rational fear, actually. <laughs> but it seems to me that when I, when I think about why is it that, that people, even just approaching the subject of the name of Jesus or Christianity in your workplace or wherever, it's instantly felt that this is inappropriate to talk about. And why can't that have some kind of spiritual explanation at the root of it. You, know, you can see these same things coming through that are here in this passage, that are coming through in our own culture. And it really all boils down to this, what I'm telling you. That the authority of Christ creates a reaction in people because they know that he is a threat. We know it, you know it, you feel it every day, that when you want to go your own way and be autonomous, the authority of Christ still has you still grips you, still pulls you, still causes a reaction in the deepest part of you. Which is why you can't just live the way you want to. Jesus is present. And you know it in your gut that you are answerable to the Lord of all. And that you're not free in the sense of being autonomous. Jesus has claims on you. And you have to you have to know that in your conscience you are living to please him. And of course all of this creates a reaction deep in our guts, doesn't it? 
So whilst there's attraction, there's also this, this reaction. And I want to bring you to a third element of the authority of Christ here, which is that it's transformative, that he can change your life. I've described these two kind of opposite things, really, up to now. How he's both attractive, but also we feel a gut-level reaction to him at times. And certainly we see that around us. And I suppose the only way that really makes sense is because of the greatness of his power and the absolute reality of who he is as a person. In other words, he's not, he's not mediocre. He's not mundane. There's, there's a, little, um, a little organization that is around the corner from where we live called Vauxhall City Farm. And when you visit Vauxhall City Farm, it's a very quaint experience. You get to feed a few goats. And um, you can feed... And llamas. They have llamas. And um, they, they got what else? Alpacas. Alpacas, okay. Uh, I stand corrected. And... Uh, I'd have both, alpacas and llamas. So it's a really exotic little farm. But they have, they've got some pigs, they've got chickens, they've got a few of these things. And it's really a chance for kids who grew up in the city to be confronted with the wonder of, of wildlife. And I've got a daughter who, when we took her on holiday into the countryside last year, she saw, she saw some, um, some sheep dotted on the hills and she said, elephants. So <laughs> there, is, there is a necessary uh, thing here going on. We need to educate our children. Um, so it's a lovely experience but it, it doesn't really mark you in any way it's, you can take it or leave it it's just in, in one sense it's very it's just very it's very meh, it's sort of very blah you know, there's not really much it doesn't really provoke much emotion in you but it, if you could imagine for a moment let's say they, for some freak reason there was like they, they rescued a, 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 a male African lion that, that some crazy person had in their flat in, in a Vauxhall, and they had this thing present in one of their ridiculously um, lame cages in Vauxhall City Farm. There would be something very compelling about the presence of this animal. I think there would be queues around the corner to come and see it, but also terrifying, because you know this place is not built to house a lion. And there's something about that when you're approaching the person of Jesus, right, that you, you need to see what he's about, but at the same time, there's something very terrifying about him. I, I promised myself I'd never use this quote, but it just seemed appropriate today, which is from um, the, uh, the Narnia series, and particularly The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Lucy, Lucy uh, or Susan and, and um, the beaver are discussing Aslan, who they've never met, the lion who represents Jesus Christ. And the beaver says that Aslan's a lion. He's the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, I tell you. Now you hear the voice I use when I read it to my children. <laughs> so, uh... now, of course, this is what we see about Jesus, okay? He comes into the, he walks onto the, the stage of history. He walks into our lives and he's both attractive, but also there's something terrifying about him because we know there's things we have to give up, there's things we have to change, there's, things, there's ways that we have to surrender he wants every part of you, not a little bit of you, as I said earlier. And the question is, well, what's, why, why would you draw nearer to someone like this when he's so threatening? 
Why, why is it that the crowds are drawn to him rather than pushed away from him? And you can see that they are, right? Something terrifying happens in the synagogue, but it says, verse 27, they're all amazed. And the question, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It says that once his fame spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee, I think part of the answer just comes through. There's many ways we could answer this, but part of it comes through in, in how you see he can change lives. This is the answer for you as well. That his authority has with it the potential for transformation in your life. Bland things don't change the world, do they? You think about this negatively, it means that his presence will lead to the continual confrontation in your life about whether he is Lord or not. And the continual need to surrender to his lordship. That's what it means to become a Christian if you're not one. It does mean that you give up. You give up fighting. You say, Jesus, you're in charge. But it is also the daily battle of Christians who are wanting to grow in their faith. It's the, the, the constant will to surrender to his lordship and, and stop fighting him. Or to put it another way, to think of it positively, this transforming power, it speaks of his goodness to cause you to experience life. You remember how it's put in John 10.10? He says, I come that they may have life and have it in abundance. So this attractive and threatening, reactive reality of his authority in your life means that there's enormous potential for him to change you. You can think of it like this. You know how once upon a time in our country, um, the way the nation was, was ruled was through local authority, through lords who governed particular tracts of land. And under their lordship, it's a bit like Downton Abbey if you've ever seen that, but, but even more so the case centuries before. Under their lordship, these men would offer protection, but also demand you know, obedience and, and certain taxes. And if a Lord was absent, you can imagine how with his absence would grow all kinds of abuses. Those with most wealth or most power or most tendency towards violence could run havoc in a community and rule a community. But when the Lord returns, maybe he, as they often did, they went to war and then they returned from war. And if he found disorder on his lands and on the farms over which he ruled, he would want to reimpose his authority there. And for some, that meant, that meant threat. Because it meant he was cleaning out. But, from, but the overall effect was that his authority is a good thing. Because with his authority comes safety and security and human flourishing. And I think you see the exact same things going on in the lives of individuals when Jesus walks into your, into your life. And this is what you see here in something very, almost mundane. I'll show you this, how it says immediately he left the synagogue, verse 29. And he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You can begin to see how the authority of Jesus comes into your life as something that wants to bring transformation. Just a few things I notice about this that are miracle. One is that it's, it's very mundane and unimpressive. 
I actually find this really interesting. The first miracle that Mark records Jesus doing is basically a woman with a high temperature. You know, this is the same Lord who could raise the dead and, and, and do these kinds of things. And basically he comes in and helps a woman who might have been helped by two paracetamol had they existed at the time. And I find that amazing because partly just because it speaks to the authenticity of the gospel. They're not trying to ham things up. They're not trying to write stuff which is just going to get a reaction. They're just telling you what happened. This is what happened. This was the first miracle Simon saw. It was his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law as well. A little detail there. Just tells you this really did come from Simon Peter. Peter was the witness who gave this story to Mark. Mark wrote it down. But all of that just to say, the authority of Christ comes into your life and he's interested in the tiniest details, the mundane things, just as he was in this woman with a high temperature. You see also how his authority is so gentle. I know there are times when Jesus speaks in the most fierce language and times when you see him even being violent as when he drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip. But most of the time, when the authority of Christ walks into our lives, it's much more like this. How it says he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. He's very tender. He's very gentle. And it's also wordless. It's just the touch that he gives. He simply wills her to be well. She's well, and her life, her life has changed, I'm sure, from that moment on, because having encountered Jesus, she immediately begins to serve him. You see a picture there of what it means to be changed by Jesus. He comes into your life, and he touches you, and immediately you want to serve him, because you feel everything in your life being put back into order how it should be. And friend, what I'm trying to stress for you here is that when we're reading a story like this, the fundamental question which should challenge you is how, how are you going to respond to the authority of Christ in your own life? You may experience that feeling like the man must have felt having heard Jesus teach that desire to run away because there seems to be safety in escaping Jesus if you could possibly do that. Because you know the parts in your life you don't want to change. There's habits and patterns of behavior. There is a will that you do not want to be broken. And so there's a temptation to buck against the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. But maybe you can see, as I think we, we can when we look at this passage, how... His authority comes in to do us good. And you only really experience the goodness of Christ's authority in your life when you surrender to it, actually. Part of what it means to be a Christian, and I speak to you whether you are not a Christian today or whether you've been a Christian for decades, it really doesn't matter. But part of what it means to be a Christian, the essence of it actually is to trust him. That's what faith is. You trust him in the fact that he died for your sins. You trust him in the fact that he, he loved you enough to bear his sin upon himself when he went to the cross. 
But the trust does not end there. The trust actually only begins there because then it begins to pervade every part of your life. And you begin to say, I want all of my life to be ordered along the patterns and in line with the authority of Jesus now. He saved me. He's cleansed me. Now he can rule me. And so he comes in and he starts tidying up. He starts setting things in order. And you may be conscious of some area in your life in which you, you know that you, you are resisting the authority of Jesus. And that authority will remain threatening to you until you, you give up. And you say, Lord, be Lord today. Jesus wants all of you, remember. Why don't we pray? Jesus, we thank you that you have shown us how your authority works. Because, Lord, you didn't come in in a brutal fashion. You didn't come in to crush and to conquer. You came helping old women onto their feet. You came delivering and healing. And Jesus, we all need a touch from you again today. We need you to come and exert your authority on our own lives, Lord. We need you to come and set order where there's been disorder and chaos. We need you to come and and heal and mend and restore. And so we come to you, Lord, and we say, Lord Jesus, we just... We just open our lives to you like Simon Peter opened his home. We open our lives to you now. And Lord, as you come into our lives, we pray, will you set things right again? Will you free us from sins which are so hard to overcome? Will you, will you come and forgive us? Will you come and mend our broken ways of thinking and our often self-destructive habits and patterns of thinking and of behavior. Will you come and bring healing where there's, where there's wounds and where there's brokenness, Lord, in us and where there's bitterness and unforgiveness. Lord Jesus, we, we need you to bring order now. We need you to step into our lives. We pray, Lord, come and exercise your, your rule again. That we would be changed. Lord, where there's parts of our lives, and I'm so conscious that sometimes there is just one thing that we just will not give up. And we kind of barricade it. And as you're chipping away, we keep trying to rebuild resistance and say, no, not here. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to just let you in again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.